Welcome back to the Black Letter Podcast. We set out to create an entertaining and exciting podcast about law and business. Black Letter, the name, comes from the Gothic typeset. Over time, Black Letter became the only font that English law books were printed in. It made it harder for kind of the common person to understand what the English law books said. Black Letter came to represent something that was law, that was set in stone, that was sort of old and a well-settled fundamental principle of law. We're here to demystify black letter law. We're here to demystify things that happen in business and law and where those two meet. And I hope you have fun listening. I think it's fair to say that even still in the United States, law tends to have more men than women practicing. Um, And I think the firm that you work at, it's sort of a reflection of that. There are certainly female partners, but it's a male-dominated profession. And from what I understand, you're the boss of the the company. So how does how does that work? And you're not a lawyer and you're not a man and you're running a firm full of not completely full of, but a lot of lawyers and men with strong personalities. And I dare say maybe David can back me up on this. Lawyers have fairly big egos and fairly strong convictions about how they want to run things. How how do you how do you how do you deal with that? I think that's, I think it's 100% accurate, but I think it's dealing with the same way of any, um, even back in aviation world, mm-hmm. you had the same personalities. You have people that know what they're doing and they're very smart and they say, hey, it should be done this way. And right. I come in and say, hey, well, let's evaluate this and, and see what we can do better. I think part of the, um, when I started at uh, DBL, a lot of it is to one, understand what they are doing very mm-hmm. well. Um, and then, you know, gain their trust and understanding and actually kind of have that knowledge base. Don't say, we're just going to do this, get their buy-in, which we do. Um, and I think it's been successful. You have one small victory at a time and they start right. trusting you. And after you get trust, they start saying, oh, she really knows what she's doing and is more willing to kind of adopt it more quickly. Well, so um, tell me about when you joined the firm, the firm was filing more trademarks than any other law firm in the United States. Yes. And had a sort of jumbled structure for the process of filing trademarks. I think it filed 1,400 trademarks in the U.S. or registered 1,400, filed 3,500 last year. Uh, how did you detangle that web? And d- did you have to learn about trademarks? Yes. I, I, sometimes I joke when the, you know I came into the law firm initially, I knew like, what's the difference between a trademark and a copyright? I had no idea. Um, so it was like part of the process of learning. I went into that. But now group. you know. I know a lot more than I, uh, yeah, I know a lot. <laughs> you know, sometimes I hear people talking, I'm like, oh, that's not a, that's not a copyright. That's a trademark. You know, so it's kind of, um, you know, now my newsfeed is filled with like trademark stuff, which is kind of scary. You know, it used to be aviation stuff. Now it's like trademark or, you know, business law, employment law. So, um, yeah, it's interesting. Uh, but I think you have to get involved to be able right. to solve the problems. And I think managers or anybody at any level, if you don't, know how to do it yourself and understand what's going on, you can't solve the problem. You guys have a goal at EBW and assuming this this healthcare stuff's part of that to create a hundred billion dollars in social and economic impact in I guess you've got nine years left to do that to get to a hundred billion. Is that right? According to yes. your, so so how so what are your plans to do? How are you, how are you going to get to a hundred billion dollars? That seems like a lot. And that's social and economic impact. So part of that, the lawyer and me, I want to know what we mean by social and economic impact. So what is that? Is that a a footprint that you create by launching people out into the world? And then 
how do you get a hundred billion dollars of impact? It's a great question. And, and actually, I mean, I, I, as I say to our executives and folks we work with, I like to try to keep things really simple and then hire super smart people around me, you know, get out of their way, make sure we're clearing paths. Regarding the $100 billion in impact, the nice thing about it is we already have precedent set. I mean, we've done it. So we know how to do it. We know how to execute on it. And the way that you do it is basically three simple steps. First of all, our goal from a financial perspective is basically leveraging our platform to create you know, commerce of a billion dollars between enterprise and these entrepreneurs. So I set up the first sort of innovators debt fund at Dell. And what we learned at Dell was essentially, you know, if I loan Tom a buck, right, Mm -hmm. you're going to take that dollar into your business and you're going to basically purchase the supplies that you need, hence back to why we were setting up the business distribution, 10x whatever I loan you. So we've got a billion, you're going to go out and purchase 10 billion or 10 bucks worth of stuff. And then with that 10 bucks worth of infrastructure in your business, you have the opportunity to create another 10x that impact in the marketplace. Gotcha. So when we look at it from billion, it's, you know, billion out into the marketplace, leverage that to uh, purchase with companies like Dell, AT&T, Visa, whatever it is, 10x, and then another 10x again, in terms of what those companies actually will do in the space. It's a model, it's a recipe, if you will, that we've successfully set up. And we're simply just allocating, not allocating, but replicating it again. So Ingrid, so is this is this partial debt funding for women empowered businesses and is it SBA backed or is it commercially backed or is it something like charitably backed, foundationally backed? Like how do you guys back the debt and then how do you manage when you accelerate a company? I assume that you guys have a percentage of the company kind of like a venture capital group might or something like that or do you just give them straight debt or is, or does the model vary? I asked you like 20 questions, but yeah. So. So it's, it's a great question. And, and, you know, again, to simplify it, like the PE guys say, what is helpful as we work in the financial markets is EBW, if you look at it under one lens, people might be like, okay, wow, you do all these things, distribution data, development, how do you actually do all that stuff? If you look through it through an investment or private equity lens, we're simply set up very similar to a private equity fund in the way that we operate. So where that money varies is I'm actually, you know, while I love debt funds, I love, you know, equity financing, I invest, we invest, you know, all of that. I'm a huge fan of teaching women, like rather than even necessarily tapping into debt financing or going after equity financing, like go after large scale contracts. And there is a humongous dearth in the marketplace of knowledge of how to actually, how, how do you, do a contract with Adele when you're a smaller company. Right. And so we teach something called the dealmaker mindset. That's part of that accelerator that okay. actually teaches you, this is how you land large scale deal. And uh, we're huge fans of essentially, you know, advocating for one of the growth metrics doesn't even have to necessarily be that financing. You can do it through revenue to the business. And you know, we teach women about margins and how to maximize your margins and reallocate that money to scale your business. So if you yeah. could, if you're talking to a business right now, say you're talking to council for businesses or a mid-sized business, what piece of advice could you give them from your business when they're looking at market channels or trying to figure out how to be discreet or be better 
or go to market digitally, which is what you do, what like one, two or three things would you say, these are the things you must know, you must remember? If you really want to get to the heart of it, you have to be honest. And that is so much easier said than done. You have to be honest with yourself. If you really want to make an impact and innovate, you have to be honest with what is your brand? Are you really appealing to the right people? And there's really great, you know, again, my background's in, you know, analyzing behavior. There's a lot of analytics that you can pull digitally so now. Let me ask you to this. Make sure you're getting the right audience. Yeah. So yeah. Sabrina, if you don't, if you look at your company and you're trying to be honest about your brand and you don't like, you say, well, if we're honest, we're a law firm that uses carbon paper to do litigation and we, you know, are struggling. <laughs> so that's not a message you want to get out. What's your advice to a company that looks at itself and says, okay, well, if we're being honest, this is what we want to say, but this isn't who we are. What, how do you, how do you, you know, reconcile those things? Right. By the way, that latter group that you just described is not the norm. Those are the true digital transformers. When you really understand that you have a problem, that's when the fun begins. That's right. when the good times roll, you know? So to get there is actually a lot harder than it sounds. But if you're there, you've, you're 50% of the way there. So to answer your question, though, how do you really make sure that you're, you're making those appropriate steps? One of the best things that we have available to us now, both as attorneys, business owners, you know, innovators, is there's a ton of data. And, and data can tell you just about everything that you want to know. If you want to know exactly who to target, if you want to understand how your competitors are, are really making a digital imprint or not, you can learn from other people's mistakes. So I guess, you know, first, get honest. Second, get close to the data. You okay. know, Forbes just published something online um, around this, which, you know, there's so much data. I think if you know exactly what to look for and you understand it, you can influence just about anything. So first piece yeah. of advice is be honest with yourself and your company. Get close to the data about what you, who you're trying to target and what you're targeting in terms of, right. I guess, demographic. And then is there a, a third piece of like, this is the other, this is the, the golden you know, answer? I don't know. This is where Continuum came in, in this sort of step one, two, and three. Okay. Is, you know, one is really hard, like we talked about. Number two is actually uh, not as difficult when you know what you're looking for. And number three is where it gets difficult again. You know, so it's kind of like a, a fun sandwich, if you will. So the third part is. <laughs> I like so fun the sandwiches. The third part is. Yeah, who doesn't? The third part is really about making it happen. Execution, execution, execution. And that's where you've got to get a solid team. Be honest with yourself. Again, if you don't have a solid team, outsource. Don't okay. be afraid to outsource because you've got to execute. The best laid, what's the saying? Best laid plan. I mean, you have to make sure that your plan is really executed against, especially when it's backed on data. You know, there's a lot of things that you can influence. So make sure that you are really looking holistically. You really built out that solid plan that addresses, you know, your channel, your internal teams across the board, and then your, you know, your marketing teams, and then execute like you've never executed before. And I promise you it works every time. You know, we talked briefly about the Great Resignation and the article you've recently written about that. I laid out what I thought the Great Resignation was. What I've read is that just masses of people are resigning. What's the answer to that? I mean, I guess retention's part of it, but how do you recruit out of that? Or how do you flip that on its head? Well, retention is the third part. But the first thing that you need to do is basic, right? Now, what we're seeing right now in some of the larger corporations in particular is 
well, if we walk into a recession, there's going to be more people available. I'm going to be able to hire. So there's those of us that have started talking about this. Remember the war for talent in 2000, 2001, when the bubble popped in IT? It's not getting any better. And now it has expanded, right? So now because of the pandemic in particular, and when, if if you get a chance to see the article, and I'll quote Dr. Hires, you know, when, once you've come through a trauma, you reevaluate your life. And if you're able to make less money or look at an alternative way to make income, which there's so many of those avenues out there, you're not going to return to a regular workforce. Now, you know, when you look globally, the U.S. in particular, right, we work longer and harder than most of the other developed nations, right? Our nine to five has now been totally exposed and unmixed. All of this said, I can tell you this, there is a job for every person and a person for every job. Even if there's a shortage in your talent, there's ways that you can work in the talent base that you're looking for. There's ways that you can work around that, but it starts by putting good business acumen around your talent acquisition. And it doesn't matter if you're that, you know, that gas station owner that we were talking about the other day, or if we're talking about, you know, Fortune 10, the Fortune 10, and having worked with all of them, I can tell you, everybody has their own issue. But once you apply these really good practices and, you know, the name of the article is Turn and Face the Strange. The reason that we call that is it's a strange work. It is strange. What's out there? It keeps changing. It's morphing. The workforce isn't necessarily certain about what they want to do either. You know, their core may be, I know I don't want to do that. But what am I going to do in the entry? But one of the biggest concerns I have that I was alluding to earlier is these organizations that are saying, well, we're going to hit a recession. These people are going to flood back to the workforce. I'm not saying. I mean, it would have to be catastrophic. So we have to learn and face this this new world of work. And with that, we have to come back and really take a, a, a long, hard look at who we are as, as an employer. And that's the beginning. One of the challenges we have and other people have is even just getting resumes in the door and, you know, putting up a, a job out of LinkedIn or law crossing for lawyers or, I don't know, all the different recruiting websites doesn't seem to be effective. What are effective ways to just get to get your company so people can see that you're hiring? Or let me make this really clear: people aren't looking for jobs, so if they aren't looking, not some people, but right? Mass amount of people are not looking for jobs. So what worked pre-pandemic is not going to work now. Gotcha. Which is really, you know, if you look at the the recruiting technologies out there, all going whoop, right? So there was this movement towards CRMs, candidate relationship management, but right. in order to hire now. You have to know who you are, and then you have to look for those individuals and bring them into the nest. You can you can absolutely do that through technology to a degree, right? But what you've got to do is get smart at the technology you're looking. Rework, relook, and rethink about who you are, and then think about who fits you and advertise very pinpointed towards that market. So tell me a little bit about how you approach infringers or how you approach protecting your intellectual property. I understand we file patents. Everybody files patents, and there's this shotgun approach. File as many as you can, and hopefully you'll capture stuff, and there's, there's defensive and offensive patent filings. But what do you guys do when it comes to somebody taking your IP, or you notice, or has that happened? We do take uh, the offense, uh, and yes, it's happened. And it can t- If you're in business, then it's going to happen. Uh, and uh, you're going to get infringers of your trademarks and also your, patent, your patents. And it's important um, that you defend them. And so we do. And usually the defense is kind of progressive. Um, you know, you'll send out the cease and desist letter, which actually works uh, sometimes. 
just recently, we, we had a situation where we sent out a letter last week and uh, we got a response, um, which was quick from the, the trademark person. Trademark or patent? It was trademark. Uh, and we got a response. So sometimes it, the, the basics actually work. Uh, and so we take that tact. Sort of surprising. That, that is surprising sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> but there are uh, certain circumstances where the, the soft approach is not going to work. We don't, uh, and with any decision that you make uh, with respect to using official uh, forums like litigation, it's got, there's got to be a business case uh, for that. And the business sure. case is uh, the value, the potential value that's being compromised uh, for the business um, and also the cost of the litigation and not just outside counsel costs, but also the internal time the and time. distraction costs yeah. uh, for the organization. But another factor that we consider is um, you know, what needs to be uh, understood by the market in terms of uh, Selenis's position on defending its intellectual property. So in certain circumstances, we have had to file offensively. Right. Um, and we've done that because um, of the landscape and what was going on in the marketplace. So, so if I were to kind of dig a little bit into that, that was a, a lot to unpack, but I think that's really vital. As a general counsel of a big $3 billion chemical company, every single piece of litigation, you're not going to even launch a $50,000 litigation for no business case reason. It's got to have an external um, business value and an internal business value, I guess. Is that right? It, it, they have to... Yeah, it's a it's has to make financial sense. Cost benefit, uh, and the the benefits can be uh, dollars, mm -hmm. uh, but it also can be the the statement to the market about so your yeah your fortitude um, in protecting your intellectual property. And the costs are you know obviously the legal costs, uh, but also the internal costs because you can't uh, you know conduct litigation without employees being involved. And if the employees are involved in litigation, then they're not doing what we ultimately have paid them to do, which is to make money uh, and to uh, generate value for customers. And so that benefit, that balance has got to be there before you affirmatively um, okay. take on litigation. Tell me about how you started Rest in Limousine and grew it from five to 250 and how long that took. I mean, to me, I read your story, of course, and I think we've met before, but I don't know the like, what was the grit and like, wh what was that thing that made it successful? Because so many people will like say, hey, I want to build a business or I want to get a, you know, I'm going to start with one car or one moving van and start a company. And it doesn't work all the time. Obviously, right. not everybody grows and you grew a lot. So what is that secret sauce? You know, I like to say I was at the right place at the right time because I was at the Reston Town Center in the early 90s. And not only did I benefit from all the dot-coms that were growing like crazy in those days, I benefited also from having a contract with the Hyatt Regency Reston, who fed me a lot of work. And, and then one day, this guy just knocked, knocked on the door to the office and said, do you guys want to bid on a government contract? And I said, well, what's that? He wow. said, oh, well, my wife works across the street at U.S. Geological Survey in Reston, and they run two vans back and forth all day long into D.C., and I said, sure. So I, I, I took the proposal and I looked at it and I just thought it was overwhelming and I didn't know how I was going to you know, figure it out, but I figured it out and I won that contract. And so then I thought, well, if there's a contract for USGS, there have to be other government contracts. And so I started researching them and figured out that every single government agency has an inner city bus route connecting their buildings. And so their employees can get to meetings and other offices. They can get to the office from the metro, 
And I just started bidding on these. And for the next five years, I won every single contract I bid wow. in Washington in the right place at the right time. And then, you know, being able to expand on that opportunity. So that between that and the dot coms, and for example, Ted Leonsis was our client and we drove him to work every day for four years. And then he got his own car and driver. That's an example of the type of business that was around in the 90s. And so we went from zero to five million in revenue without any problems. And then we lost our small business, uh, you know, status. Right. So then we had to diversify into um, universities and hospitals. And it was at that time that we decided my husband would stay home with the five kids and that I would run the business. The second 10 years of our, of our business, I grew it to 17 million and asked for a divorce, bought them out. And then the third decade, I grew it to $30 million. So Christina, fantastic. So the, so the government contracts piece, right place, right time, but also, you know, you took the initiative. And I think a lot of businesses don't always take the initiative. You won the government contract, but to me, it sounds like you're like, well, this seems like a good opportunity. Let me take that and open that book wider. Yes. And I'm sure we're government contractors too. And, and we're government contractors because we've been representing them for 20 years. And about eight years ago, we're like, we should start bidding on some of these. So we're counsel to NIH and DHS and we do their legal, some legal stuff. But it was the same thing. It was opening that book. And I think a lot of people don't do that. They just kind of look and say, well, I got this opportunity. Here's the money now. So I think that's, that's really key to your story. So is there anything kind of, I know you do a lot of charitable works. You sit on some boards. Is that an important part of your business and an important part of your network? Or how does that play into what you do? So absolutely. The first 10 years, as I said, we were very, very busy, growing quickly. But at the end of those 10 years, 9-11 happened and it got very slow and we plateaued. We didn't grow for five years. And it was then that I started networking because the phones literally were not ringing. Right. And I thought, let me get out there and drum up some business. So I joined a couple of chambers. I joined the committee for Dulles and volunteered my time to help those organizations. And that meant pretty much either volunteering on the membership committee or volunteering on the annual gala and helping them raise money through silent auctions. And soon I was recognized as sort of a worker bee, you know, kind of a doer, a doer in the group. And I was offered board seats. And one board seat sort of left, led to another. And so today I'm on 10 boards of directors. And wow. it's really that board level networking that has brought me the opportunities that have allowed my business to grow and allowed me to grow personally as well. And during that time, I also uh, joined a mastermind, a business book club, and I've joined an organization called Vistage. Okay. Vistage is a CEO membership organization where you take a day off from work every month and you go to an offsite retreat with 18 CEOs. And you not only have a great speaker in the morning, but you solve each other's business problems in the afternoon. So I did a ton of learning in Vistage and would say, without a doubt, it was the single best decision I ever made Wow! in my career was joining that group because it was there that I learned how to scale my business. It was there that I learned how to do proper you know, performance evaluations and 24 month rolling forecasts. And I could just go on and on and on. It was there that I really was educated because I'm a political science major running a business. And I, at some point I needed some serious technical education and help. And that's where I got it. I feel yeah. I was an English theater major. <laughs> um, and now I'm running a law firm 
And uh, I felt those days. I, I went back to school and got an MBA, but I love the Vistage thing. I'm actually, I, I've been approached by them before and I've always been kind of like, well, I don't know. It seems like a time commitment and money. And I just didn't know if there was value in it, but it's great to hear that from you. And I think I'll circle back and look at it again, maybe, because it does sound like you got real value out of it. Sherilyn, just, just to ask you, what if a company doesn't want to apply for forgiveness? And, and I guess my question is, why would you not want to apply? That'd be my first question. But my second question then is, if there is a reason you don't want to, what's, what's the circumstance? What's the standard? That's a very good question, Tom, because actually here at DBL, we get that question often. And when a client comes to me and says, well, I don't want to apply for forgiveness, the first thing I say to them, well, why wouldn't you want to apply for forgiveness? That's my question. Because if you are, in fact, adhering to the legislative intent of the bill, then you would want to apply for forgiveness because then we know that you are using the money as it is intended for payroll expenses. How I guide clients is I say to them, well, let's continue on the path of keeping proper records so that you can, in fact, apply for forgiveness. And if the guidance changes, and we know that it might, right, shift a little bit, if the guidance changes, either way, whether you apply for forgiveness or not, you have the proper records and paper in place. But I think it's very important to continue to remind clients and small businesses that you really need to use that money for as it is intended. Okay. That is to make sure that you are using it on payroll expenses, Tom. So that ties in then, Sherilyn, to the question of what about the certifications the form requires? So it requires, and I've had questions from clients about this, that they have to certify certain things and are not sure whether or not they can certify some of the things. And some of them have been really sort of ambiguous. Even, even when I've looked at them, I've had to go to you. For help. <laughs> so uh, tell us a little bit about that. The latest guidance that came out on Friday, Tom, really gave a lot of small business owners a sigh of relief because they basically stated that if you're under $2 million, right? If your loan was under $2 million, essentially we're going to give you a pass. However, I caution businesses, let's not get too comfortable. That doesn't mean you won't be audited. It doesn't mean you still don't have to adhere to the rules. So you still need to show that you in fact needed that loan. And I encourage everyone to keep as great of records as you possibly can. For example, if, for example, you were expecting a $1.4 million sales contract and you didn't get that, let's see in writing or an email that showed you were relying on that $1.4 million contract and you didn't get it because that also went into reasons why you would have applied for a PPP loan because you knew that you weren't getting as much money in that you thought you were going to get. So again, all of these details and documentations that business owners can show why they felt they needed that loan and to show why they felt that they were in a bit of a financial crisis. Gotcha. Understand. We have government contracts clients now that are seeing this current administration pull back on military spending. And a lot of our clients are, they're anticipating and they're hearing from their contracting officers that there's going to be reductions or terminations or early terminations or non-renewals of options. And I mean, it's kind of a mess. So you were, you were just, ha- I don't know, if, it doesn't sound like you planned it that way, but you're in a very safe kind of administration agnostic 
deal. Like I did, I did plan it that way. Fed Consulting, the old consulting company. I didn't see a couple things coming in that 2001 timeframe. I didn't see the mergers and acquisitions killing my business. I also didn't see the competition. I was younger, wasn't quite as uh, street smart, hadn't been bitten hard, you know, Um, and uh, made a lot of mistakes. The business almost went under in 2002. We closed our office. I moved back home, um, had to reinvent. It was a tough, 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 tough time. So I decided that was never going to happen again. So in that time frame, when I was planning for this, you know, from 2002 and 2004, planning for this launch and the federal government work directly, um, I did some market analysis and I looked at the immigration space. What's nice about immigration is that it's fee for service. So if an applicant is applying for citizenship, for example, they're going to pay a fee, let's yeah. $100. Of that dollars yeah. that they apply, you know, 10, 20% of it goes for the processing of their application, which we get. Uh, so we charge, you know, I'm, I'm making numbers up. I have no idea. We charge $8, sure. you know, to process an application. And that basically comes straight from that working capital fund that is funded by the applicant. So, so you weren't tied to appropriations as right. much. Illegal immigration is the one that has to be appropriated by Congress. Yeah. Stuff. All okay. legal immigration is not. It's all done fee for service. All done. That's really, really smart. That's so, something that a lot of people, you know, they see the dollar signs in military contracts, but what you did was really, really uh, a lot of foresight there. So I watched, I saw what happened in 96, in January of 96, when they didn't uh, appropriate the budget um, way back when, I think it was Clinton in office and the, yeah. the were in the, in the house and they refused to um, appropriate money and the, the government shut down, nearly killed companies because of, of the appropriations. And I didn't want to be a tie to any political party that was in Congress or in the White House. So I really, yeah. that fee for service kind of work. Now, obviously we did have some work that wasn't fee for service. Um, but most of it was, and we went after contract of the U.S. Coast Guard, processing mariner credentials, federal law enforcement training center. One of my first government contracts I won way, way, way back in like 1998, before I was even thinking about this change. And 20 years, we processed their certifications, customs, border patrol for um, oh, okay. those guys, all gotcha. their you know, all their training support. But we did all their graduation certificates, all their training programs. We we all the work behind that. It's all adjudication support in the background. Um, it's not actually yeah. on the front lines, except when you're doing, you know, ceremonies for immigration, you know, citizenship kind of things. But for the most part, were those back office people that you didn't see, you know, with their heads to the grindstones, typing in and processing right. you know, all of that adjudication work, background investigative work, making sure that people are vetted properly before they become citizens or before they get a work visa, before they even come across the border. So that's wow. the- that we did. Yeah. And again, all fee for service. So pretty exciting. I, I mean, so brilliant. Well, it wasn't actually brilliant, but it was just, I thought about it. Much congratulations to you. That's all for today's episode of Black Letter. Thanks again for listening. Join us next time when we talk about more Black Letter issues in creative ways. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode and check out our website at blackletterstudios.com.